obstetrics and gynology. <laughs> <laughs> Smart gynology. What is it? Um, gynology. Gyna. Gynecologies. Now we need a song related to obstetrics and gynecology. Flashback to 1996 there with Spice Girls, nicely introducing our nuggets of obstetrics and gynaecology. I'm going to do two nuggets at a time because I think I've had too many songs in in the past. And this time we'll focus the nugget more around the kind of questions we'll get in the exam. So nugget number one, let's talk about a normal junctional zone. First thing to note is that in the first two days of the menstrual cycle, the junctional zone is thickened anyway. That's called pseudo-thickening, and that's within the first two days. Generally, try to avoid scanning in those times. Outside of the period of pseudo-thickening, if a junctional zone measures less than 8 millimetres, you can pretty much exclude adenomyosis. If it's 8 to 12 millimetres, then that's intermediate and anything more than 12 is highly suggestive of adenomyosis. Adenomyosis can be diffuse or it can be more focal. On the MR, it may well contain lots of bright T2 foci. And that just represents islands of ectopic endometrial tissue and cystic dilatation of some glands. Sometimes it can also be bright on T1 if we have bleeding from that ectopic endometrium. So that's pseudo-thickening and adenomyosis features. And an important differential here is a myometrial contraction because that can make the junctional zone look thickened. However, this thickening is very, very different to what you'd see in adenomyosis. Thickening from myometrial contraction is usually very focal and more specifically, you wouldn't see it in subsequent sequences because being a contraction is transient. So just to summarise, this nugget was about thickness of the junctional zone and particularly adenomyosis. A junctional zone of less than 8 millimetres pretty much excludes adenomyosis. 8 to 12 is intermediate, more than 12 millimetres is highly suggestive. Within that thickened junctional zone, you may well see multiple foci of high T2 signal that just represents ectopic endometrial tissue. 
and it may well also represent some cystic dilatation. It may also contain areas of high T1 signal and this is just bleeding from the endometrial tissue. Important differential to have in the back of your mind would be pseudo-thickening, which I've said is within the first two days of the menstrual cycle. You wouldn't get high T1, T2 signal with pseudo-thickening though. And the other differential I mentioned was myometrial contractions. Again, they would not cause high T2 signal and they'd be transient. So you might see it in one, but you wouldn't see it in subsequent MRI sequences. Nugget number two is an ovarian mass, a specific ovarian mass that I've heard about in exam questions again and again, and it's always the same. It's usually a patient's had an ultrasound and there is a mass which is hypoechoic, arising from an ovary, which is causing acoustic shadowing without any calcification in the mass. So there's no calcification, yet there's a hypoechoic mass causing acoustic shadowing. Patients are often in their sort of fifth, sixth decades. And what they're getting at usually is a fibrothecoma of the ovary or ovarian fibroma. Ovarian fibromas are almost always benign. Occasionally on histology, they'll have evidence of fibroma and thecoma. So it's sometimes called ovarian fibrothecoma. But the key here is on ultrasound, they're solid. They are densely hypoechoic and will cause acoustic shadowing in 50% of cases without having any calcification. The question will often explain why there's no calcification. The patient either went on to have a CT or they've had a CT in the past. But essentially, if they talk about an ovarian mass, which is densely hypoechoic and does not have any calcification, but is causing posterior acoustic shadowing, then they're most likely talking about an ovarian fibroma. These are almost always benign. Let's do one more before the song to begin rush through these. We'll just talk about simple ovarian cysts. When I say simple ovarian cysts, I mean a simple unilocular cyst. The features of a simple functional ovarian cyst are a completely anechoic, thin, smooth wall with posterior acoustic enhancement. Regardless of whatever size these simple cysts are, the chance of malignancy is very, very low. So for the purposes of the exam, the rules are, if there's a simple cyst, a unilocular simple cyst, measuring more than three centimetres in a premenopausal woman and more than five centimetres in a postmenopausal woman, bring them back for a scan in six weeks time. If they're smaller than those parameters, you can just report it as benign and leave it. So I'll say that again in a different way. Any cyst below three centimetres in a premenopausal woman and below five centimetres in a postmenopausal woman does not require any follow-up as long as there are no sinister findings. By no sinister findings, I mean evidence of a completely functional simple cyst, anechoic, thin, smooth wall with posterior acoustic enhancement. 
and the sinister findings are a thick wall, any solid bits inside the cyst, septations, if there's lots of increased blood flow within the solid parts of the cyst, or any abnormal blood flow patterns. Any of those features require further investigation. But just to repeat again, if they don't have any of those features and it's a simple cyst, you can leave it alone. If it's over three centimetres in premenopausal and over five centimetres in postmenopausal, bring them back for a scan in six weeks time. The reason we bring them back in the premenopausal woman, this is most likely going to be a dominant follicle and we bring them back to make sure it's gone away or at least reduced in size. In a postmenopausal woman, it's probably just a simple cyst and we bring them back to make sure it's not getting any bigger. If in the premenopausal group there are some simple echoic areas within the cyst, we don't care about those, it's probably just a bit of hemorrhage. Next nugget piece of information is a unicornuate uterus. That's the one that only has the one horn on one side. In those patients, in 30% is associated with a renal tract anomaly. The most common anomaly is renal agenesis. Other anomalies include renal duplication, a duplicated collecting system, horseshoe kidney, um, what else? Cystic renal dysplasia. That was a quick one. So this nugget was just to remind you, unicornuate uterus, 30% of those are associated with a renal anomaly. This is most commonly renal agenesis, but also includes things like duplicated collecting systems, renal dysplasia, cystic renal dysplasia, horseshoe kidney and renal duplication. Next nugget is uterine artery embolization. Some things are so straightforward that if you don't learn them you're just throwing marks away and this is one of them. So what do we have to know about uterine artery embolization? It's something we use to treat fibroids because the uterine artery is the predominant blood supply in most fibroids. We are expected to know some basic anatomy of the uterine artery and basic variants because it's important when you're doing the procedure. The most common anatomical setup is the internal iliac splits into anterior and posterior branches and the uterine artery is either the first or second branch of the anterior. I'll say that again, the most common anatomy is the internal iliac splits into an anterior and posterior division. The uterine artery is either the first or the second branch of the anterior division of the internal iliac.
That's the setup in around 50% of people. There are variations, of course. The next most common variation is there's a trifurcation of the internal iliac. So, in other words, the internal iliac splits into three, anterior division, posterior division, and the uterine artery. And in a very small proportion of people, around 6%, the uterine artery comes off first. Let's just say that again. There are a number of variations of the blood supply anatomy. My repeating can get annoying, but that's the whole point, that I repeat it again and again and again, so you have to learn it even if you don't want to. The most common anatomy is the internal iliac has anterior and posterior divisions, we know that. The most common is that the uterine artery simply comes off either first or second from the anterior division of the internal iliac artery. That's around 50% of people. The next most common is in 15 to 40% of people, and that is a trifurcation of the internal iliac. And the next most common is the uterine artery coming off first, and that's in 6%. Other important points to know, I've already said the uterine artery is the dominant blood supply to most fibroids. The ovarian artery can also supply and so what we what is normally done is once the procedure is over, the uterine artery embolization is over, the extent of the ovarian supply is also assessed with pelvic aortography. The ovarian artery arises from the aorta. A normal ovarian artery you often can't see on angio because it's very small. If you can see it, it has this characteristic corkscrew appearance on an angiogram. You can get utero-ovarian anastomoses in 10 to 30% of people, 10 to 30%. If there is an absent uterine artery, then the ipsilateral ovarian artery will often replace the absent uterine artery. And finally, you are more likely to have an ovarian artery supplying a fibroid in women who have either previous surgery to the pelvis or history of tuber ovarian disease or fundal fibroids. Just to recap the main points again, the uterine artery generally supplies most fibroids. They can sometimes be supplied by the ovarian artery. So once a uterine artery embolization procedure is complete, we assess the extent of the ovarian supply with pelvic aortography, flush pelvic aortography. There are anatomical variations of the uterine artery that I've mentioned. If a uterine artery is absent, it will often be replaced by an ipsilateral ovarian artery. The ovarian artery has a corkscrew appearance on angiogram, usually comes off the aorta. If it's normal, you can't see it and anastomoses are common, utero-ovarian anastomoses, in 10 to 30% of people. 10% of people will also have a left-to-right uterine anastomosis. I didn't mention that before. Finally, you're more likely to have ovarian supply to fibroids if you have had pelvic surgery or tuber ovarian something disease 
or fundal fibroids. That's enough, I'll do some more in a couple of hours. I feel like I need to add, be nice to your mums. Just a quick through read through of core radiology obstetrics should be enough to make you be nice to your mums. Hi guys, before you listen to your episode today, we just wanted to take a moment and say thank you because this project has snowballed. We have hundreds of listeners and it's lovely to hear. It was a novel idea and it seems to have worked and we have so much more in store for you from December. We have lots of new hosts joining us, each with their own character, their own unique taste in music and their own style. We will have more songs, mnemonics, rhymes and lots of ways for you to remember things. That is all coming up from December and it's going to be so much fun. For the moment, we are putting a temporary break on new material just because the exam is looming and we are all taking it. We do have the odd half an hour here and there, however. So if there are specific topics that you'd love us to cover that you can listen to on your commute, then please do drop us a voice message and we'll do our best to do it as soon as possible. We've reached the home stretch and the finish line is in sight. So get your heads down, give it one last push and from the team at Songs for FRCR, good luck.